Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, April the 28th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Uh, As we're recording this, the National Public Health Emergency Team is meeting to discuss its recommendations to government on the gradual reopening of society during May and beyond to the summer months. While we don't know the exact details of the government's plan until tomorrow, I think it's pretty safe to say we already have a pretty clear picture of what's going to be proposed with gradual relaxations in areas such as non-essential retail, outdoor sports and some services like hairdressing, with issues such as outdoor dining and intercounty travel perhaps deferred until June at least. Meanwhile, there has been further tweaking of the vaccine rollout plan in recent days with adjustments to the cohorts deemed appropriate for the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines, and a move yesterday to give just one jab to people who have had COVID and have no other underlying risks. So there is an awful lot going on. And to discuss all of it and more, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Professor Aoife McGlyset of the Independent Scientific Advisory Group. Aoife, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I should say at the outset that from a political podcast point of view, it's one of the most fascinating things for me to observe over the last year has been the rise to public prominence of scientists like yourself, making your voices heard in the public debate and and contributing to to civic discourse. And it's been very heartening and very interesting. And I hope we can talk a little bit later about ISAG's overall thinking, its promotion of of zero COVID and, and how it carries out a strategy. But first of all, um, I suppose just in terms of what I was talking about at the top of the show there, do you think you know what's coming down the tracks over the next 24 hours and how would it compare with what you and your colleagues think we should be doing? Oh, well, it's, I mean, I'm guessing like you, um, I mean, there's been a lot of hints. Um, there have been hints for a while, so I don't know exactly. But over the last week, everybody has been talking about the opening up and the easing of restrictions. That has been very much the general theme through um, whatever we hear. And my concern is that they're doing this at a time when the numbers actually look like they're going up. So, you know, we have, it, it's, it's appropriate to have a gradual reopening. And the reason it's appropriate is because you get to see the effects of your first step before you take your second step. And um, we were all, everybody wanted the schools to be back as the first priority. And that's the situation we're in now, but we do see the numbers going up. So, The government has said on multiple occasions that it's about the data, not the dates, and um, the data aren't encouraging at the moment. And so, um, I mean, we want everything to be open. Everybody wants everything to be open, but we want it to be open safely and permanently. We don't want this yo-yo situation that we had last year. And so that's my concern, that the the numbers are going the wrong direction and that um, by proceeding anyway with uh, reopening without any other steps taken, you know, to, to, to change the situation that we're just sending ourselves back into this same pattern again. And that'd be my fear. And what would the alternative be? Well, I mean, the alternative is that we should have, I mean, this is, it's getting frustrating because we've been saying the same thing over and over, but we should have been, this lockdown has not been effective. And I know when I say that, that a load of people react and go, what do you mean I've done everything? And I know this because they say it to me directly on many occasions. But it's true that a lot of people are doing absolutely everything. You know, there's no more you can ask of an individual who is staying at home and not meeting up. But there are a lot of people throughout this, since, the, since uh, early January, mid-January, who have been attending workplaces, possibly because they are required by their employer. And you can't have an employee deciding unilaterally not to go to work. Um, we also, and we've seen that, you know, so because of things like that, this lockdown has been sufficiently inconsistent to not have brought the numbers down. The amount of time we have spent in lockdown is more than sufficient that we should be at, like, we should be at really low zero case numbers by now. So it's not the amount of time that's the problem. It's the way it's been done. And so the, this lockdown was not as a effective and not as complete as our lockdown 
last the first lockdown last year and um and we know more now so we could have even done it better than last year because last year we were only staying at home now we know about masks and ventilation all these things it could have been quite easily a better lockdown but there are things that um haven't happened so you know so many people being required to attend workplaces um especially um and you know without mitigating factors in those uh, workplaces so i know of places of solicitors practices where they were all attending without masks and you know no extra ventilation um we all know then as well about you know there's the problems in things like meat plants where um they seem to be working more or less full tilt and um then because we also have not been doing proper source investigation which is sometimes people people call it reverse or retrospective contact tracing so the contact tracing we've been doing mostly is trying to figure out who like if i get infected who i might have given it to over the last two days rather than where i got it from and by not doing that we've been kind of semi blindfolded and and it's also but it's been convenient in terms of not having to deal with problems because we didn't know they were there officially but i mean it's been plain that people in um certain crowded workplaces um and then often the same groups of people might also be in cramped accommodation and just not addressing these issues has sustained the sustained the pandemic and you can see it and you can see when you look at the national statistics there are some counties that this lockdown has worked very well for you know so there are some counties where the numbers are right down have been consistently down you know kilkenny is one of them uh cork and kerry have been doing well sligo you know so there's and then there's other counties kildare and offaly um you know that have been consistently high as well and it's not that the people in Kildare and Offaly are somehow different than the people in Kilkenny you know it's that there's certain things that are different in the counties and you know the the some of the workplaces some of it's a bit of bad luck because when something when it gets in it's a bit stubborn it stays but um you know there's some of these workplaces where it hasn't been addressed so workplace transmission has been really significant this year in 2021 you know in the post christmas period and it hasn't been properly addressed and by not standing up to that we've all been left in this kind of maximum misery lockdown where it's been just dragging on and it hasn't been hasn't been effective enough i mean the other thing of course is that i mean the public health units the regional local public health units have been sorely neglected throughout this whole process this whole uh, pandemic and um it's uh it's been really hobbling us because they are very capable and competent to do outbreak uh control and outbreak containment but they haven't been able to because they haven't been resourced to do it so we've been putting all of this onto so-called personal responsibility when and, and people are tired of that and they're rightly tired of that because it it um it isn't fair when it's been all put down to personal responsibility when people have done everything that they're capable of and i think it's a nonsense you know when you talk about asking people to isolate when they are found to be infected or even if they're a close contact and they don't have a place to isolate you know they live in cramped accommodation they don't have a bathroom to themselves they don't have a kitchen to themselves of course their housemates are going to end up infected and then bring it to their respective um workplaces so if you don't give somebody somewhere to isolate you know asking them to isolate is a nonsense i suppose i mean obviously these are all you know multifaceted and 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 complex issues but you've identified yeah. a number of uh, a number of things there and really it'd be no surprise to anybody listening to you that there are more people in the workplaces I just you know we all go out for our walks every day or at least I do and compared to a year ago with the the first lockdown there's really no comparison between the yeah. kind of the tumbleweed which was blowing down the streets at that point and that kind of quite heavy traffic jams that we see now I mean I do wonder what to do about that. I take your point absolutely and I think Isaac has been very strong and completely correct about the underinvestment in public health and the the very negative impact of that and also the specific problems relating to certain industries like meat packing, underpaid workers, living in cramped accommodation, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you take something like the solicitors, is mm. it really that we should just say now you can't go to work anymore to those solicitors or what should we actually do now? Well I mean <laughs> I think it should have been um I think it should have been yes a much more um mandated and really pushed much more for work from home but the problem is and I think the reason people didn't want to do it is because they didn't have faith in the government to make this a short sharp shock which it could have been you know so I think they said I mean they perhaps 
accurately predicted that the government were not going to really do this properly and we're going to let this drag on. And if it's going to be dragging on for six months, well, then I can't I can't work like that for six months. And so that's I think that's what happened. You see that in the in the kind of comments that people make. They say, you know, if this is going to go on for six months, I can't do it like that. I can work from home for six weeks, but not from six months. Just to come back to my question to you, if Isaac was Neffet or if Isaac was the government, what would Isaac do now in May? Okay, so, well, it's always been the same in the sense that we've, it's always possible for no matter where we are to, to get the cases right down so long as you uh, do it aggressively. And so no matter where we were in this, uh, you know, in the case numbers, and we do the same now, we would say to people, look, I know it's been awful. I know this has dragged on longer than it has, but if we do it now and we do it properly, in a sense, um, you'd be making a pact with people, but you'd say, look, we do these things and then we can actually have, um, we can actually reopen safely and, and permanently and securely. But it would be, yes, it would be essentially asking people to properly uh, uh, work from home like we did uh, last year, which was a very effective lockdown. Um, and, it, and it totally worked. I mean, we know this. I suppose you've seen the, the work that's come from Paddy Mallon in UCD, where he showed from genomic analysis that our first work lockdown did uh, eliminate the virus and then we just brought it back again. So, I mean, so yes, it would be that we would ask people to um, work from home, to really cut contacts where they can, and um, that we really have only the essential workers in, in their workplaces but then back that up with um, proper resourcing for allowing people to isolate when they need to. Um, I would also suggest that um, what needs to happen is um, greater engagement with various marginalized communities in the country as well. And you see this in other countries where they have actually proactively engaged with marginalized communities who maybe have a distrust of the health services and distrust of the authorities um, and um, engaging with them, having community representatives who can actually gain their trust and, you know, talk to them about the, uh, the testing and, um, you know, introduce them to the, um, like the resources that are there and try and help and try and help engage with marginalized communities as well, because there are various communities in Ireland who may be made up of, um, say, uh, immigrant workers who might not have a relationship with, for example, a GP um, or might not um, have full faith in the Irish authorities. And there's all kinds of examples like that. And um, that's one thing that actually the public health doctors can do as well. They can have community liaisons. Um, and these are all things that, so these are all things can be done. So there isn't, I mean, I think the problem has always been throughout this, that there isn't a simple solution. There's, never, there's not this one thing. I can't just say to you, there's this one thing, when we do it, it'll all be over. Um, and that has been the problem throughout because that's, um, that's not very satisfying when people want this to be over as quickly as possible. There's not just the one thing. But, um, so the, but the, <laughs> if I eventually do answer your question, but we would be basically saying that if we do a, a proper lockdown now, get everybody, including the solicitors, yes, to work from home, um, anything, anybody who doesn't need to be physically in their workplace for essential work, work from home, get this over and done with, then we can properly reopen safely. And can I ask you, would that mean closing schools again? So this is where um, there can be uh, differences of opinion. I have, so um, I want the schools to be open for uh, personal uh, you know, reasons and because I see the value of schools, but I'm also nervous about the schools being open in terms of it being a large collection of people um, and the, all, all the transmission that goes along with that. So I would personally like to try and keep, I prefer, personally prefer to keep them open. There's only a few weeks left in the term anyway, um, and they've missed out so much. But I think from, if you asked from a, like a pandemic management point of view, that would actually slow down the, the progress, but it might be an acceptable price to pay in the sense of we wouldn't we wouldn't see the benefit of the lockdown as quickly um but um you can kind of have that trade-off there and there are there are trade-offs in all of these things but i would see schools um just with how much the school children have been out um over the last year and a bit 
I would be reluctant to close them again, but it would be it would be more effective if we did. But you and your colleagues have pointed to what you see as a clear correlation between um, a rise in numbers or a plateauing followed by a rise in numbers and return to school. Yes, yes. No, there is there is a link there. And that's why if you want schools to be open, um, the idea of opening more things is really, really risky strategy because um, it could very quickly send us into um, into a really dangerous zone in terms of case numbers. So if you if, if schools are your priority to keep open, um, then we are just really on a brink at the moment in terms of uh, things going wrong again. So there's no scope that we see for reopening further, unfortunately. And the other part of that, of course, isn't it, is that we um, the dominant variant here now is much more transmissible, uh, leads to a higher R number than the variant which we pretty much stamped out at the yes. same time last year. So that, that changes all the equations there. It does change things a bit, yes. So it um, it means that uh, essentially with the older variant, the previous variant, um, if you had 10 contacts, um, I think maybe two of them would have got infected. And now if you've 10 contacts, I think it's about four of them get infected, something like that. Um, and if they are household contacts, it seems to be almost 100% because I sp- the, the repeated um, interactions and the prolonged interactions, it seems that in, in household settings, once one person gets infected, it seems that they, they all do at the moment. So yes, that does make it, um, that does make it a bit harder. Um, and that makes group activities um, that bit worse in terms of transmission. Yes. It's all a pretty bleak message, isn't it, for people who are listening to it and the people who are hoping to get out a little bit as, as, as the weather gets better. Can I ask you something else, which is yeah. when, when, when you set up the group last summer, I, um, I think it was, there was a certain framework within which all this was happening. And part of it was that the generally received wisdom among the scientific community and reported in the media was that at the very earliest, we'd be really lucky if we had some form of decently effective vaccine starting to roll out towards the end of 2021. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of people were surprised at the speed at which we got the vaccines that that we have now. To what extent does where we are with the vaccines now at this point change the equation on zero COVID or overall strategy? It makes zero COVID easier to achieve because it helps to um, break chains of transmission and to reduce the ore number. So um, it helps in that sense. Um, and I think the, I mean, the vaccines are, are really brilliant and, and everybody is delighted at how quickly they were produced. It's quite funny because I think a year and a bit ago, you wouldn't have thought that producing multiple different vaccines with new technology and everything would have been the easy bit. <laughs> but it's been made to look like the easy bit because that's the bit that's happened most successfully. And um, uh, really has been really impressive. But it makes, because the vaccines help um, protect people, because the ha- vaccines hopefully help reduce transmission as well, um, it helps, it actually makes zero COVID easier to achieve. It doesn't make zero COVID um, unnecessary. I, I think if you, because if you're talking about if we still had, if we had the vaccines, um and we still had the virus rumbling around at high levels that could still be dangerous. I mean, I think we all agree that we want to get it right, right down. It's just about how to get it right down. Um, so, but the, the vaccines are a really important tool in achieving that. Um, it also, as we know, it takes some time for the vaccine rollout to, uh, to occur. And um, if, we, if we could be 100% certain that by... Um, let's say by November, everybody, every eligible adult, and let's just say they, it, the vaccines get approved for children as well. So every eligible child is vaccinated and that's going to protect everybody perfectly. And that'll essentially lead to the death of the pandemic. If we knew that and we say by November, it's all fine. Would you still want to live until November the way we're living now? Um, not really. I think this has been really bleak for people. So even if you knew that there was, uh, you know, an expiry date on the pandemic of the end of this year, um, I would still want to say I would still like to live that year in 
much more comfort than we currently are. I'd like to be able to see people. I'd like to be able to interact with my friends. I'd like my children to be able to see their friends. Um, and so even if we knew that, I think we'd still be, I would personally still be saying go for it. And if you look at um, New Zealand and Australia, and every time I mention them, people go, we're not Australia, <laughs> we're not New Zealand. But still, if you look at them, they are also waiting for the vaccine rollout, but they're waiting for the vaccine rollout in much more comfort than we are. Their children are not um, suffering in terms of uh, such reduced interactions with their peers. And they're, um, you know, they don't, and they also have not had this huge death toll that we have had. So even if you say, if the vaccines just, if the vaccines were calling a complete halt to everything and they were going to achieve everything possible, um, we'd still want to um, still want to stop all the death and suffering in the meanwhile. We can't let it just burn through the population. That's too devastating. And so we want to get this, uh, the numbers right down so that we can open. But I suppose what a lot of people might say, and I suspect the government um, would, would say this as well, is it's not an, it's not an either or between zero COVID on the one hand um, and letting the vaccine rip through the entire population, which is a pretty terrifying uh, thought on the other. And they would point out, we might come back to the New Zealand and Australia thing, you'd be glad to hear, but um, they're more likely to point to what's happening in countries that are further down the road with, with vaccine rollout at the moment. So I think Israel declared, I'm not even sure what this means, but it declared it was now in the in the middle of exiting the pandemic, whatever that means. We look across very closely at the UK, obviously, we always do that. And we can see that they're relaxing. And essentially, I suppose, underlying both those strategies of both those governments is looking to bank some gains on the vaccine before you achieve the perfection which you talk about in November, because for a number of reasons. One is that mortality rates are are falling because at-risk groups have been vaccinated um, and that, you know, num- numbers of beds and ICUs and those kind of things are going down for the same reason. And that while they're not necessarily saying, woohoo, let it rip, open everything up, everything's fine now, they are cautiously, they would say, moving to reopen their societies over right now and over the next three months? So I think we kind of are living the middle ground, actually. So, you know, the we're not, we're not, our government happily, I'm, I'm pleased that it, it, we never had to argue with them about not letting it rip. So it, I'm, I mean, we're very lucky in that regard. So we, and but we, they didn't go for elimination. So this is the middle ground we're living in now, um, which is this prolonged lockdown. But when you talk about other countries um, who are exiting so um, like the UK, yes, they have been much faster with their vaccine rollout than us. We do see the impact of that. Like, so when you look at their case numbers and um, stratified by age, you could clearly see that the older age groups, the case numbers came down faster. This is really good news. But the UK has had an extraordinary amount of death as well. So I don't think they're our shining example of how to manage this well. Um, and Israel, they have been really good with the vaccine rollout, but they have also had a parallel lockdown during this process. They weren't totally open during this process. So um, it's not, yes, it, it, it isn't necessarily an either or situation. Um, but I think when you're talking about countries that are um, rolling out the vaccine successfully and relaxing, it isn't necessarily, uh, it isn't necessarily totally rosy picture. And the thing that um, we don't know enough about yet as well is um, the long-term effects of infection. And long COVID is one of those that is, um, you know, we're slowly gathering information on uh, long COVID, but there are a significant number of people who are suffering with this, um, some kind of syndrome, post-viral infection syndrome um, that, uh, that they have after having a COVID infection. And many people describe this as being extremely debilitating. And there's, um, so those cases don't pop up when you're looking at, when you're counting deaths. Um, And, uh, but those cases will be a significant burden, not only to those individuals, but to our um, general health system and the productivity of our population over time. If we think about it that way, we don't know how long long COVID is going to last because we don't have information yet. Um, we hope that it will not last long, but, um, you know, there it's, it's, we're still discovering that and we're 
taking chances with that then as well. If we if we say that it doesn't really matter if people get infected without dying, if we say that doesn't matter anymore, I think that's um, rather um, it's a very risky strategy. But I'm not sure that people are at least people, for example, in government or people who who I, I would consider sensible anyway, are saying it doesn't matter if people don't get COVID. But they might be saying there is a manageable level. You know, all these phrases fall into disrepute sooner or later, like living with COVID or whatever it might be, but that there are manageable levels. And while I completely take your point about long COVID and some of the reports are really worrying and we don't really know exactly what's going on there, there, there is a kind of a pact with the citizenry over the last year or so, and it was essentially because of the the, the threat, which was painted correctly, that COVID posed to the to the population and to, and to certain parts of the population, but to the whole to the whole lot of us. And if long COVID is a threat, that wasn't part of the in, initial pact. And I think one needs to sort of go back to the drawing board mm-hmm. if that's what's driving. What we have to remember is this sort of unprecedented restrictions on our personal liberty, not to mention our economic and psychological and everything yeah. else well-being. Well, I mean, I suppose one point there is that people didn't know about long COVID. It was, uh, this was, everything's been new over the last while. But um, I don't know how everybody else understood it, but like, when we went into lockdown the first time, I actually thought we were going for elimination. That seemed like the, I mean, I thought we were trying to get COVID back out of the country you know, we got down into the summer where we had days where the nationwide cases were three. You know, we had days of three cases in the whole country. Did you not think we were flattening the curve? That's what I remember being told last spring. Yeah, they were told flatten the we were said they said flatten the curve, but everybody the mentality seemed to be like drive it all actually it was crush the curve was more the the sentiment. And um and that's actually what we did. And so I'm not sure that, you know, people don't the population at large um, and, and most people aren't familiar with, you know, the terminology around epidemics and epidemiology. And so I think if you ask people, what were we trying to do? The people that I was talking to, they all thought we were trying to, you know, get it back out again. They didn't think we were trying to let it simmer under the surface so that as soon as we turned our back on it, it would boil over. I think people thought we were trying to put it all the way out. And, um, that was that was the sentiment i and i thought that was the pact last summer last year actually but um and the thing is with the prolonged lockdowns these prolonged lockdowns are not necessary and they are not part of what needs to be done the prolonged lockdowns are a symptom of not having taken all the necessary steps so our lockdown that we did last year i mean it's i know it's easy to say this now the distance time and the benefit of hindsight but our lockdown our first lockdown was enough we didn't need to do more lockdowns the first lockdown was unavoidable because we you know every like everybody else we were caught by surprise and by the time we realized that covid was here it was already spreading inside the country and that that's just the way things happened we were caught unawares so our first lockdown was unavoidable but every lockdown since then has been avoidable Every lockdown since then has been due to mismanagement and failure to anticipate. And I think that the mistake that was made um, last year was that um, it was not recognized that this was a long-term problem. And that this, um, I thought, I think they, people thought it was a short-term problem and um, didn't deal with it properly. And I mean, that was seen in December as well, opening for a few weeks. Um, sure, which we which we now, you know, hindsight is, is wonderful, yeah. but my God, it really applies to that to that Christmas yeah. thing. Can, can I ask you so, I mean, is there anyone in Europe who's done it right? Um, a country, um, no, but there are, I mean, there are little patches, but uh, no, there's no European country who's done it right. Um, and that, I think, has hindered us because we've been probably comparing ourselves to Europe. Understandably. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like because when we were uh, in December, you know, we were best in Europe, which somebody else described to me as like winning Division three. Um, I don't follow football, but I get the point, <laughs> you know, um, you know, that, you know, we were comparing ourselves to such a weak, um, a weak field that um, it, that it wasn't helping us. And when you talk about it, like within Europe, Ireland had really the best chance of uh, really doing this right. Because we do have not like even with the North, we have the simplest um, situation. Well, along with Malta and Cyprus and Iceland. 
Yes. Okay. Um, yes, yes, yes. I wasn't, uh, I was thinking of bigger countries, I suppose. Um, sorry about that. But Iceland has done well. Um, but I was thinking, um, and Iceland has, uh, you know, the population of something. Is it like three or? 300,000 or so. Yeah. yeah. I know an Icelandic person and they know every other Icelandic person. It's not a joke. <laughs> you know, it's like they do all know each other. Can I maybe just phrase it to you, to, to you slightly different? And this maybe comes back a little bit to the Australian New Zealand thing. I, I, I got an email a few months ago from somebody I know who's a very distinguished veteran, academic and scientist, uh, now retired. And we were talking about something else. And he just exploded with rage in the course of our email correspondence about, as far as he was concerned, the dismal political moral failure of the Irish government and the medical establishment to probably essentially to implement the kind of the kind of measures mm-hmm. that 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 you've been arguing for. And I, I'd asked him, as I asked you, well, who's done it well in Europe? And he said, no, nobody has. And he pointed to the, the examples we're familiar with, South Korea, Taiwan, um, Australia and New Zealand. And I got thinking about it, you know, and bear with me for a moment, but I'm just thinking that you know, if somebody when somebody's writing the history of this in ten years or twenty years time, mm-hmm. and if it was an alternative history, if things had gone as, as you had proposed, what that historian would be would be describing would be a situation where in mid twenty twenty, uh, a caretaker government which led to a very rickety, unprecedented coalition government with new people going into all the key jobs, took an extraordinary measure given the history of Ireland over the last 30 or 40 years, in that it totally went it alone in a way that no other European country and no other EU country did, that it imposed mandatory quarantine on all people coming into the country, that it prevented travel at a time when the rest of Europe was opening up. And not only that, but that at a time when it faced a huge existential threat because of Brexit and questions of border controls, that it closed down the common travel area with the United Kingdom, and that not only that, it remarkably either shut down the border with Northern Ireland or somehow managed to persuade the Ulster Unionists to create an all-Ireland, non-UK bubble. It really would be a pretty remarkable set of political events to take place. And I kind of feel it that was just never going to happen. So the way you're describing the alternative history is that, you know, in 10 years time, somebody looks back and they're looking and Ireland is the only one who did it. But I sincerely think that um, our success would have, I mean, as our success was like, it was within touching distance, um, it would have inspired other European countries because as they went into their second wave and we were sitting comfortably and um, not ha- like, you know, with um, all the usual stuff open, enjoying an internal domestic economy, having a good quality of life other European countries would have compared themselves to us because of proximity, because we do have this tendency to compare ourselves to people closer and they would have followed. Ireland, it's not, it wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been even the first time that Ireland went it alone with something that looked really challenging and um, succeeded and led the world. So, you know, the smoking ban brought in by our current T-shock, that was an extraordinary public health measure that is one of the most significant public health measures that has been achieved um, over uh, recent decades. And uh, everybody would have said, you're never going to get stop people to stop smoking in pubs. Smoking in pubs and clubs, you know, was so ingrained. But it worked and other countries followed. And, you know, if you would ask at the time, will Italy ever follow? You know, no, no way. But of course they did. And then, you know, plastic bag tax, these kind of things. You know, so I, I actually think, I sincerely think that, um, the um, success that we would have had, and I know we would have had it because we were basically there last summer, um, would have inspired the other European countries to do the same thing. Then we would have been talking about something like an EU or a Europe bubble. And, um, And this is something that might yet happen because we still don't know how this is really going to end. And at some point, um, we do need to get out of this safely. And it might it might yet happen that Europe eventually gets it under control and becomes this kind of Europe bubble. But whenever that happens, it won't happen evenly over the whole continent, as we even see within our country. It doesn't happen evenly within Ireland. There are some parts of Ireland that have got their numbers right down while other parts are still struggling. And those parts of, of the country, I think, are quite inspirational to the parts of the country where it's still struggling because despite B117, the, the so-called UK variant, they have managed to get the numbers right, right down. And you see, you know, zero, zero, zero for days in a row 
or less than five or depending, you know, depending on um, how small the numbers are. So, um, yes, it would have been extraordinary. Um, yes, it was it would have been um, difficult. And I'm not trying to never try to say that managing this pandemic is a doddle. It was always going to be a challenge. But nothing that over the last year has been easy anyway. Just, you know, even without taking those uh, difficult political steps, the last year hasn't been easy anyway. And, um, you know, we're now facing into huge economic problems because of the costs of the, the PUP payments and all of the other extraordinary expenses that have come up over the last year, which are going to have apparently lasting impacts. Um, so nothing has been easy. And so it was a matter of deciding which difficult thing would they do. And um, I think they picked the wrong difficult thing because now they, they did have a temporary suspension of the common travel area anyway in December. And so they showed it could be done. We are bringing in a mandatory hotel quarantine, so it can be done. Um, it's a bit piecemeal at the moment. Um, unfortunately, I think that's it is, it is a shame that it's piecemeal because the government's stated purpose for the quarantine at the moment is not to achieve zero COVID. Of course, they've never said they want to achieve that. It's to keep out um, variants of concern that might um, potentially uh, threaten the vaccine rollout program and all of that. But by only picking a few countries, they're not, they're not, um, they're risking that they don't even achieve their, their more modest goal. Because um, if you just take the example of the P1 variant, the one that people call the Brazilian variant, so this was first identified in the city of Manaus, which is a big Amazon city in the Amazon. And I don't know a huge amount about Brazil, but I've been told by people who do that this is not a terribly well-connected city. This isn't a big cosmopolitan international hub. Yes, the variant that first rose there has spread worldwide already in a very short amount of time. So it doesn't need to be a London or a Tokyo um, that this happened in in order for it to spread really widely. And so, you know, so putting Brazil on the list of um, countries where you have to quarantine from, that makes sense. But also lots of other countries because the P1 variant is no longer just in Brazil. That's just where we first spotted it. And so um, the government has taken lots of extraordinary steps. Um, they have done lots of extraordinary things. I mean, if you had asked me in January last year, would, the, would an Irish government ever close the pubs for over a year? I wouldn't have said they would. You know, they've done lots of things that we thought were impossible. Um, but they, and I just wish they'd done a bit more because we could have saved a lot of lives and we could have been living also a much more comfortable life. I suppose I wonder, and this may actually be a stupid question, and please do tell me if it is, but when I look at um, ISAG and its 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 works and its strategy over the last year or so, I wonder sometimes, I put a political frame around it, and I know that this is primarily, these are primarily scientific discussions, but they are inevitably and definitely political discussions too. And I ask myself, well, well, how do I frame this in my understanding of how politics works? Because there are certain types of people who see politics as as quite deeply ideological and they have a vision of the way the world should be. And they paint that picture and they may perhaps be happier with painting that picture than painting some other picture, which be a compromise with the reality of the way the world is. Um, and when I look at the work you guys have done over the last year or so, I wonder, for example, do you feel you've had an impact on the situation we're in now, even if that situation is not fully to your liking? So, for example, I suppose the obvious thing would be on the partial mandatory quarantine that, that that we have now. Do you think the the work that you've done is one of the things that's led to that? Well, I suppose I hope we've had an impact. Um, we've been trying to bring things into the public discussion that weren't necessarily um, there. We've been trying to um, explain to people um, you know, what we can expect from particular actions and what we can expect from particular decisions and events. But in terms of the way you mentioned that this is also a political thing, I mean, it is because um, you know, the science is quite clear and it's just the political decisions of how to react that have been different in different countries. But there are scientists involved in and, and going along with those political decisions with which you disagree. I mean, 
We can follow the science up to a point, can't we? But the scientists disagree, certainly on the implementation level. Yeah, some scientists do. Yes, that's true. And um, but I mean, if you I mean, so in, in your question, you kind of um, I think I, if I understood you correctly, you said, you know, there's kind of something in the, the art of compromise, the political art of compromise. And I think if you just take just public health doctors as a discipline, um, I think from the way I look at them and the way I understand them, I think that's exactly the space they inhabit. You know, it is um, how do you how do you implement things with real people in real populations and how in you know with knowledge of how messy and difficult things are. And so these are people who are very uh, well aware of um, you know the the art of the possible and what's need, you know what's needed like that. But um, and, and but yet still uh, the public health doctors, any of the public health doctors that I've heard uh, speaking and any epidemiologists I've heard speaking have said that we do need to go for an elimination strategy or as, as close to that as we can, aggressive suppression of the virus, because anything else is just teetering on an edge. You know, you have you're, you've got you once you take your foot off that break, you start uh, spinning out of control again. And that's what we that's what we have seen a couple of times now. And so I suppose people are learning and um, the theory has been put into practice. And we've seen that once we once we relax, when we relax at the wrong time, um, the virus just uh, increases again. And, um, you know, even with in the situation we are now from where we are today, our case numbers are higher than they were when we had our disastrous December reopening. Um, so yes, we have um, some people vaccinated, and I'm very happy about that. Um, uh, my parents have received their uh, first dose of vaccine. And I'm very happy about that, and I have uh, one member of my family who's on a vulnerable list and has received their first dose. So I'm really delighted, and I do feel better for the fact that they have received their vaccines. Definitely. And um, I will enthusiastically be rolling up my sleeve when my turn comes. But still, we are still in a situation where things could go disastrously wrong. Still, we, if, if we took the wrong steps now with the high case numbers we have today, um, we could still end up in a small number of weeks like we saw in December with disastrous case numbers. And um, I hope we wouldn't for multiple reasons. I hope that the government doesn't uh, um, have a hasty reaction. I also think that the general pe population is a bit wiser now as well. Unfortunately, some hard-earned wisdom, um, as I think, I think so many people were affected in in January, directly or indirectly, that people learned uh, the hard way how how bad this is. Just in terms of the numbers there, just just that you asked about that, um, I, I'm not no great fan of these European league tables and anything because they bounce around all over the place and I think they cause more, more harm than good at times. But people will point to um, the actual numbers, case numbers at the moment, as being amongst the lowest in, in, in Europe, I think second or third from the bottom of that particular league table. And as we know from January, that can change really bloody quickly and can completely flip around in, in the opposite direction. But is the concern about the numbers that they remain at this slightly rising plateau or is it the trajectory over the last two three weeks that you're more concerned about i'm more concerned about it going right up again yeah so i mean it's not the current case numbers if it was flat it's still not good right still a lot of people who are suffering but um yeah more, uh, the, the thing that i am more worried about is the idea that it quickly goes up again and um so what we see when we look at the numbers um, so we were looking at numbers earlier this week, is that in younger age groups, um, there's quite a rise in cases. And um, then, so which correlates a bit with school going age, um, then um, the group that would be the most likely parents, so the kind of the age group that would be the parents of these, then we see with a slight delay of time, but an increase happening there. And so um, that is concerning and um, we're just worried about how that's going to unfold in the, in the coming days and weeks. So that's, yeah, I'm, I'm very worried at the idea that it could um, shoot back up again. 
Can I also ask you, I was looking through our, our archives in the Irish Times and there was a piece that, that you figured in along with Sam McConkie and other people, which was just about becoming a public figure over the last okay. uh, over the last year or so and what that's like. And not just becoming a public figure, but becoming a public figure in the midst of a, a, a sometimes very fraught, um, very heightened uh, and, and politicised debate. What yeah. has that been like and what way do you and, and your other colleagues and I say, think about that being becoming essentially politicians in a way? Yeah, I think we probably don't have a uniform reaction to this. So I'll just, uh, I think different people react differently. Sure. Um, for me, it's been um, like at times very uncomfortable because I've had uh, people sending me messages, um, <laughs> not very pleasant messages, because of course we've been delivering at a at times very unpopular message. You know, we were saying in November and December that we shouldn't uh, reopen hospitality and retail for Christmas and that people didn't want to hear that, you know. So, and so I had people telling me that I was trying to prolong people's suffering and that I didn't care about small businesses and, you know, they weren't always saying it so politely and all that kind of thing. But um, so the, so that hasn't been that hasn't been comfortable. But I've always been the kind of person who speaks up. Um, that's just uh, in my personality, I suppose. And um, it's been, um, I think, all of us felt a need to speak up because uh, we could see the potential of what could happen, and also the potential of uh, an alternative way of, of dealing with this pandemic. And Sam McConkie has himself expressed it very well. I've heard him in various interviews and um, talking about how earlier in his career, there was a, a time when he didn't speak up and um, he regretted it. And, um, and that had stuck with him. And uh, that, you know, just that if you, if you see something and you feel you need to, need to put a, another uh, another view forward to say actually you know it doesn't have to be this way and there is something we can do about this there are steps we can take and we can avoid the worst of this the situation and that's that's what's been motivating all of us um i mean i don't think any of us feels ourselves as politicians um, I think sometimes some of the government feel us like an opposition which is unfortunate and i if I could undo that sentiment, I would, because I think um, they think that we're like an opposition voice and their instinctive knee-jerk reaction is to oppose the opposition. And um, I would really like, um, and I think it still would be valuable to be able to have a conversation which is just with a problem-solving mindset, not a who's right mindset. I suppose that's a that's probably a deep seated you know cultural problem as much as anything, and the media has its part to play in that. In that you know we all look for for binary opposites, and certainly I find it bizarre that you know some of the characterizations of the zero COVID position as basically you're all a bunch of masochistic Puritan zealots of 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 some sort, and I don't think that's the case. I do wonder on the other side about um, uh, there was mentioned in the Shannon a couple of weeks ago about some leaked documents that came out of ISAG oh. and particularly ones. Um, um, I, I'm not sure if our listeners are acquainted with Saul Alinsky. He cropped up in a minor way in the 2008 presidential election campaign. And he is somebody who wrote a, a document about political campaigning, uh, which is quite a quite a controversial one. I think it's I think it's great to say because it it advises, you know, basically ad hominem attacks to attack the person rather than the idea and to kind of to spread fear around the place. Now, this document apparently was uh um, was put forward, or at least was drawn on by um, by Anthony Staines, who's one of the members of ISAG. The examiner were asking him about that last week. I didn't quite get what his answer was about it, whether the document had no part to play in his thinking or your thinking or ISAG's thinking at all. Can you shed any light on that? Sure, I'll try. Okay, so my my position is starting from total ignorance in that I am one of the people who had never heard of Sololinsky. So there you go. You can see how politically active I am in that way. Um, so I only learned who this person was actually after this stuff was coming out in the <laughs> in the media. But um, so, I mean, all that happened was, um, as, as, as I 
discovered looking back on it, because there's a lot of emails that go through, is in one email, somebody said, um, Saul Alinsky has these li this list of rules for radicals or something that they're called. And that was it. Somebody mentioned it in an email. It wasn't, um, that's it. That's like literally it. But I mean, this is muckraking as far as I was concerned. People were trying to trying to dig up dirt to try and discredit us. Um, people have been flinging that around at us ever since that saying, you know, that we're trying to make people scared and things like that when it's absolutely not the case. I mean, it's so that was that. Yeah, that was that. That's the nature of dirty politics, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. people people always share all kinds of information internally and in the political world. They always have to be prepared for the possibility that it might yeah. it might come out and it might have consequences. Yeah, I mean, well, like so, when we're not political operators, and um, you know, and and so we're not like that. And it was, yeah, and it, like it wasn't, it wasn't, it when it wasn't even so much as it was adopted as a policy or anything. It was just literally in the bottom of an email one time that it was somebody pasted, somebody pasted, copy and pasted that in. That's all. I mean, yeah, I mean, so people, I mean, I don't know, can't say more more than that about it. It wasn't. Didn't even notice it at the time. <laughs> Last question, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Um, I'm going to say something which you uh, may disagree with. I don't believe that this current government is going to implement the zero COVID policies for which you are arguing over the next several months. If I'm right in that, has ISAG failed? Um, so I think you're probably right that they won't because I don't see them changing now. Um so has ISAG failed? Um, I mean, you could say that we have, yes, I suppose, if you want to. If you say that narrowly that um, the, the point was to try and achieve, like we did want to get Ireland out of lockdown safely. We wanted to have them out. We didn't want this lockdown. We wanted, I mean, um, we failed multiple times. We failed to convince people last summer that we... Um, that it wasn't over. We failed to convince people um, before Christmas that opening up was dangerous. Um, uh, yeah, so maybe we have, but um, would I still have tried anyway? Yes. Eva McLeisett, thanks very much indeed. Thanks very much to Eva for joining us. Thanks also to our producer Jennifer Ryan and JJ Vernon on our engineering desk. Remember, we'll be back in your feed very soon, but you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 